Hey everyone, Giordano here from The Juice Media. Welcome back to The Juice Media Podcast, a companion to the Honest Government ad series. This is episode 11, which is a companion to our latest Honest Government ad, the machine. Hello, I'm from the government with an update on the pandemic. As you know, in order to flatten the curve, we've had to turn off the machine. The machine has not been turned off for a long, long time. Nobody even remembers who turned it on. So please bear with us as we consult the manual after prizing it from the shitted pants of capitalism and figure out what to do next. As you can see, we're branching out from the shitfuckery of the Australian government in order to have a look at what other governments are getting up to around the world. This is the beauty of the new Honest Government ad format that we've been playing with, which you may have noticed if you've seen our last two videos have been hosted by your local government franchise, Government TM, which allows us to switch with ease from one shit government to the other, whether it be big players like the government of China or Brazil, the UK, Poland, Belarus, and even failed states which I think you'll agree is a great way of dealing with issues that transcend national boundaries, like the climate emergency and, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. To talk with me about the big picture and the parallels between these two overlapping crises, I'm going to be joined in part two of this podcast by a truly awesome international guest. I'm going to leave you hanging. It's going to be a surprise, but you'll find out soon in part two of this podcast. But in this episode, part one, I want to go back to our roots because I don't want the Australian government to feel neglected and we haven't spoken about them in our last two Honest Government ads. Which is why I've decided to dedicate this episode to discussing two critical issues that are unfolding here at home but which are equally relevant for people around the world the COVID Safe Tracing app and the Economic Stimulus Package. And I'm honored to introduce to you as my guest today, two of my favorite commentators in the Ozpol scene who are experts on these matters. Lizzie O'Shea, writer, broadcaster, and human rights lawyer, founder, and the current chair of Digital Rights Watch, which advocates for human rights online. Her first book, Future Histories, just came out last year in the UK, US, and Australia. Check it out. And my second guest, Ben Eltham, journalist, author, and researcher who has covered Australian politics and society for the past decade. As national affairs correspondent for New Matilda, Ben is also the federal politics commentator for 3RRR and a lecturer in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University. Just one note before we kick off, this podcast is recorded under quarantine and lockdown for the pandemic, so we've all had to make do with the equipment that's available to us. So please excuse the crappy audio and video. If the pixels bother you, please remember that the main value of this podcast is in the content rather than the visuals. If you're looking for great visuals and shit content, we've got Sky News for that. And now it's my pleasure to welcome onto the Juice Media Podcast, Lizzie O'Shea and Ben Eltham. Welcome both uh, Ben Eltham and Lizzie O'Shea to the Juice Media Podcast. It's really awesome to have you both here. It's also the first time we're trialing this out with uh, video, so let's see how it goes. Um, I've brought you on because you're both experts and I really love your takes on um, on your respective, the respective topics that I'm going to uh, ask you about. But before we get into that, um, you know, the video that we made was very global, international focused. We kind of let Australia a little bit off the hook saying, you know, we, they weren't the worst this time. How do you feel overall, you know, in the global context compared to, you know, you know, we've seen how it can go horribly wrong. What is your feeling about how the Australian government um, handled uh, the, this pandemic crisis or is handling it? Okay, um, well, maybe I'll start. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah maybe I'll start. Uh, I think Australia is probably characterised uh, best in an essay that's commonly used to kind of describe our national character by, um, which is called, called, talks about it being a lucky country, which is that we 
don't realise our own luck. In essence, we're, we're blessed with a second-rate political class who aren't very good at what they do, but we're also blessed with a, a beautiful place to live and, um, and lots of wonderful natural resources at our disposal and a nice community and a sense of camaraderie. And so that's sort of what I feel has happened. We've got second-rate political leadership but we also have shown solidarity and care for each other, which has allowed us to get through this crisis. We also happen to be an island nation, which insulates us perhaps from some of the logistical difficulties of managing uh, the spread of a virus like this. And so it's classically Australian. We managed to have come through this without um, too much uh, devastation. There may still be more to come, uh, but not really, I think, because of the genius of our political leadership, much more due to the fortune uh, of our particular position. Yeah. Ben, yeah, what's I'd, your, I'd probably what's your I'd probably agree with with Lizzie on that one. Uh, you know, I, I think Australia's muddled through here uh, relatively well, and we have been quite lucky. Ironically, I think one of the little pieces of luck that we've had was to do with the devastating bushfires over the summer, which meant that. Uh, a lot of people weren't travelling to Australia uh, around about December and January um, internationally, uh, and I think that made a big difference in terms of the, the number of people coming to Australia who might have been carrying coronavirus at the time. And then something quite unusual happened, which was that the government decided to listen to the advice of experts, which has been Amazing. something that the Liberal National Party has struggled to do many years now, but in this particular case, I think because of the gravity of the situation and perhaps because it was a health issue and not a politicised issue like climate change, uh, they were prepared to listen to the advice of the public health experts and that meant that we, we actually put in place some pretty good policies early on, unusually for the Morrison government. So uh, they had a pretty good early response, but I think we're also now starting to see that kind of uh, that desire to listen to the experts start to erode and we're starting to see a more overtly political response to the, the pandemic as the months continue. Probably the, the two key, there's a lot of stuff to talk about, huge, huge topic. And that was actually one of the challenges in writing this last Honest Government Act is like, shit, where do you even start? But here in the Australian context, um, two of the key issues are one, the economic stimulus package, um, the bailout, um, and the policies that are, that are that that are that are accompanying that, and all of that, and the COVID Safe app, which is the the tracing app, that's been uh, rolled out huge, which is to huge controversy. Um, so I wanted to zoom in and focus on these two particular issues, and I'd like to start with you, Lizzie, um, if you could explain a little bit. Um, the story of what's behind with the app. Have you installed the app first of all, and then why have you taken that decision? Could you give us a little bit of a, you know, a bit of a rundown also for people who might not be in Australia and not know the details of it? Sure. So I'm the chair of a digital rights organisation called Digital Rights Watch, and uh, it came as no surprise to me that one of the policies that was going to be pursued by the Australian government that they flagged reasonably early on was a technical, technological solution to the spread of coronavirus and trying to manage it. I think many people who work in this space uh, are not surprised to see governments take advantage of the opportunity presented by this crisis to perhaps experiment with forms of technology that also double up as forms of surveillance. And I don't think that's a conspiracy theory idea. I think it's actually just uh, using past conduct as a guide to future conduct. I think there's many valid reasons why lots of people in the digital rights space are quite concerned about proposals to deal with this crisis 
from a technological perspective. So the government has put forward the um, app, which is designed to assist with contact tracing. It uses Bluetooth technology to collect beacons that a phone might collect when you carry it around to give an idea of who you may have been in close proximity to. Uh, and the design of it itself is uh, still unclear because the source code hasn't been released, but it's modeled on the Singaporean uh, version of this app for which there was uh, open source um, available for people to scrutinize. Uh, so that's really what we understand it to be, a handshake essentially between two phones using Bluetooth technology. And in many ways, it could have been a lot worse. It could have been an attempt to use locational information that might uh, be present in a phone, uh, that they might have gone around um, individual user requirements and gone straight to companies to do that without uh, any transparency. So there's, there's choices that they could have made that could have been worse. But there is a lot of things to be pretty concerned about. The governing legislation that deals with this app has only uh, has not been passed, so it's only just been tabled recently, the bill. So there's an issue where the cart comes before the horse, where they launch an app without releasing the source code, without releasing any of the law that will govern it, uh, and then expect people to download it, uh, and they'll deal with the laws later on. Uh, and that, I think, is indicative of the kind of approach to these projects, which is they push the technology first as a solution to the problem, and they deal with the privacy rights issues later, uh, and, and the crisis is used as an opportunity to push this kind of technology onto us. Uh, so the footing or the framework that uh, began this process has not been great. Uh, I think there are things that we can see that are better than they could be, uh, but I think many people are concerned for very valid reasons. I mean, there's a there's a historical context here because the the government has introduced uh, this isn't this is a familiar story for those of uh, for the people sort of following the government's uh, tradition of introducing legislation regarding anything to do with this this particular the government the last few liberal governments there's a long tradition backed by Labour government let's not just you know let's not just a, it's not just a, um, a liberal party thing um, but we've had you know uh, various other policies and legislation that have been rammed through uh, without sort of much regard for experts and a lot of trust has been squandered so how does this how does this app fit into that uh, historic context of mistrust I mean do people yes. trust this government should they <laughs> I don't. I mean, I haven't downloaded the app, so that gives you a sign okay. of what I think. Um, but I mean, I also understand it's a personal choice. So what you do individually uh, doesn't necessarily dictate how you can respond to these questions from a policy and structural perspective. Uh, you're right to point out this context. So Australia is part of the Five Eyes, uh, which is essentially the Anglophone countries are in an intelligence sharing arrangement. Um, Canada, the United States, New Zealand and the UK. And for a long time, these countries have pursued a policy of mass surveillance. And we've had 20 years of incursions onto rights uh, and increased powers for intelligence and law enforcement agencies at the expense, I think, of our digital security and, of course, our privacy and the full complexity of that term. Uh, in Australia, in particular, we've seen over 80 pieces of legislation that are designed to deal with the threat of terrorism uh, that have been extremely invasive of people's rights. Uh, so that's the context in which this comes. Uh, I think there is uh, uh, limits to what they've been able to introduce for this particular project. Like it's certainly the case, in my opinion, that we are getting to the point where politicians now take uh, these concerns more seriously than they might have in times past. 
So we've had the passage of um, uh, encryption breaking legislation of a metadata retention regime in Australia. Uh, they passed with some controversy, but it's certainly been a marathon, not a sprint towards the defense of digital rights and towards a world in which politicians feel like they have to take these concerns seriously. Um, there, there may be electoral consequences and social movements may be in a position to challenge their power. And so in some ways, I feel like even though we are still facing a serious challenge with this act, uh, we're a lot um, closer to a place where we'd like to be because we've done that work building up people's understanding of what rights mean, um, people's understanding that technology uh, questions aren't really just for geeks to consider, that it's actually for all of us in civil society to think about and to be conscious and aware of, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, but it's still absolutely the case that there's an enormous deficit when it comes to public trust. That means we are never going to get near, I don't think, the take-up rate necessary to make this app effective. And that's really, I think, the big question here. What is the role of an app like this, especially in a context where we don't have the necessary take-up rate, which could, you know, the Chief Health Officer talks about it being 40%. I think it ought to be a lot higher, realistically, for it to be effective. And maybe we have to think about non-technical solutions to these kinds of problems. How do we build up um, trust in health authorities to do contact tracing, resource them appropriately to do that work, so that instead of it becoming a technical solution to a very real-world problem, we're actually addressing the problem itself, which is managing the spread of the virus, um, not putting technology projects ahead of, uh, ahead of what they're designed to do. There's a headline uh, that um, you pointed out to me. Um, the headline is, People who refuse to download the COVID-safe virus tracing app are the new anti-vaxxers. Um, what the f***? Uh, what, you know, it, how, how do you respond to this? What, what's, what's your yeah. take on that? I do think it's really interesting watching the propaganda come out about this app, like, and not just from the usual suspects at, at, at Murdoch um, platforms, but actually also uh, within the state broadcaster, um, the ABC, has been pushing this line uh, that, that it's really important that it's your moral social duty to download this app, and if you're not doing so, you're putting uh, the lives of frontline health workers at risk. Uh, and that kind of moral um, blackmail, I think, is effective, uh, and that's why they do it. And I'm really concerned that the government is kind of pushing this line with the media, and, and the media isn't really stepping up to the task of asking the critical questions necessary to get this right. And there's notable exceptions to that, of course, but uh, the majority of the media likes to simplify these things. I mean, it doesn't need to be said, of course, but uh, downloading an app is not the same as getting a vaccine. Uh, the app is not going to stop the spread of the virus. Uh, there are other ways in which we need to to change our behaviour to stop the spread of the virus and to contain it and manage it. Uh, and, and my argument is the the more effective thing you can do is, is wash your hands and stay at home, um, but also potentially keep a diary of people you've been in close contact with. Uh, and so I find often with these discussions, there's this real sense of um, technological utopianism almost, that we've just got to get the technology right uh, and we'll be able to solve social problems. We'll be able to paper over these social differences because that's really what's going on. And the same, it's, a, it's, it's decades, I think, of, um, of socialization whereby uh, surveillance is treated as the cure-all to problems like terrorism or pedophilia or other kinds of criminal activity. Very social crimes that, in the sense they've got a social context and they need to, they're very serious, they need to be dealt with. But assuming that law reform and technology together can fix them, I think is a mistake. But it's not a surprise to me 
that this is the philosophy that's being put forward because we've seen this for 20 years, um, really since the 9-11 terrorist attacks in the United States. This has been the approach of the surveillance state, of the government, of the political class, uh, and it's overwhelmingly becoming a social phenomenon where that's what we assume is the answer, that the state is the provider of safety and they do this through legal means, through technical means, and it's our job to defer to them uh, and to adopt the relevant um, technology in order to do so. And I think we need to start thinking about that afresh. I actually think what you referred to before, the biggest way in which we've managed to stop the spread of the virus is people um, practicing the politics of care and solidarity, of looking after each other, uh, of limiting their risk, of making sure those at risk are able to limit their risk by looking um, after your neighbour, by caring for elderly people, that kind of thing. And that's never given the kind of attention that is, I don't think, much more of what the focus is kind of technology and law enforcement. In the bigger picture, in the bigger scheme of things, um how do you see this sort of um, uh, setting? What kind of precedent do you feel that this sets? And I might start with you, Ben, and then perhaps, uh, Lizzie, you could um, give, give a final comment. So, I mean, I see I see the, the COVID safe app is what the security expert Bruce Schneier calls security theatre. Uh, it's something that looks good to the general public. Uh, it gives the impression of security, but it's not really making us safer. Uh, we saw in... Um, testimony to the Senate committee uh, yesterday that the figure of 40% for the population for the take-up target, that it was just a figure they made up. They just plucked it out of the air and there was actually no, uh, there's actually no numerical basis to that figure whatsoever. Uh, and, you know, as Lizzie's pointed out, there's a bunch of technical problems with the app as well. Um, what would have been better, I think, would have been an approach that admitted that there's no technical fix to this issue, that what we need is good old-fashioned contact tracing and uh, a human response to, to what is a, ultimately a biological issue. Uh, and, and I think, you know, in some respects, uh, Scott Morrison and the health authorities, particularly in some of the states, um, have been pretty honest with people about the biological nature of the pandemic. Uh, and I, and I think to some degree that the desire to rush into this kind of COVID safe app solution is, is I think, motivated by desperation, particularly from the Morrison government, to try and relax the restrictions as quickly as possible and to get people back to work because they're utterly terrified of the scale of the recession, uh, the, the economic downturn that's now confronting Australia. Sure. So if anyone's listening and tearing themselves apart about whether they should be installing the app to make Scott Morrison and Jesus happy or whoever, whatever field trip people are on because they feel they have to do this or, um, you know, or they're like, no, I'm not going to do this because, um, you know, don't tread on me kind of thing. Like is what I'm hearing from you is that we can spare ourselves the angst of this security theater and actually practice the advice which experts, you know, from Norman Swan to uh, physicians and epidemiologists have said that the way we deal with this is, as you said, through good old fashioned, um, you know, um, looking after each other, isolation, uh, you know, just taking basic precautions um, rather than trusting um, this half-baked app which may or may not be good i think we're ready to have a discussion about it that is on um on is an honest terms i suppose is what i'd say and to the extent that you are tearing your hair out a bit about this what i would suggest is that moments of crisis um and you know plenty of people have observed this are moments in which power does try to to, to infringe rights but it can be a moment of opportunity for those in power to exploit and 
we need to be on guard for that. And asking these questions is not an illegitimate thing to do. In fact, I think it's one of the most critical things we can do to make sure that the society we have at the end of this is the society that we want. And hence, we, the, what we're seeing with the anti-vaxxer accusation, it's kind of, it's still designed to shut down that debate and to stigmatize people who, who are legitimately asking um, important questions. So um, thanks so much. I know there's more to talk about on, on, on this, but I, I really feel like that should really bring people up to date with, like, you know, where it's at. I want to turn to um, Ben um, and ask you a little bit about the the stimulus package. So the government, in order to keep the machine sort of puttering along so that everything didn't um, collapse, um, has introduced a massive uh, economic stimulus, the same as uh, several other countries. Could you please explain to us what happened? Because there was a huge flurry of activity. Um, and in the middle of all that, you know, did everyone get bailed out? Were there some uh, people who missed out? Who? What's going on here? If you could give us that. And again, just remember, some people might be listening from abroad, so maybe a little bit of background. Yeah, sure. So uh, what happened, Giordano, is that the Australian government decided to spend an awful lot of money to try and keep the Australian economy from seizing up completely, basically. So uh, the coronavirus economic downturn is in many ways more serious than um, probably any economic crisis we've faced since the Great Depression, the 1930s, because it's a, a crisis that affects uh, some of the biggest parts of the economy as we know it. You know, like what what are the things that have had to shut down in the last few months? If you think about it, these are huge sectors of our economy and some of the biggest uh, employers uh, in, of, of our economy. So some of the sectors with the the most number of workers have had to shut down and go home. Uh, sectors like uh, accommodation, hospitality, uh, transport, uh, culture, and recreation. Uh, these are these are some of the biggest employers in our society. Uh, so all of a sudden, um, you've got millions of people have been thrown out of work, and you've had demand in the domestic economy fall off a cliff. Well, in fact, demand across the entire world fall off a cliff. So it's an unprecedented economic crisis, um, and in a situation like this, there's only one thing that can really prop up the economy, and that's a government which can spend money, right? Where does the government get its money from? Well, it can do a couple of things. It can print money, like it can just create money out of thin air, um, or it can borrow it on international money markets. It doesn't really matter how it gets its money, though. What, as long as it promises to spend it in the domestic economy, that's what can potentially prop up the economy, at least in the short term. And that's what the Morrison government and indeed many governments around the world have done. So they've announced a huge stimulus package. We're up to about $214 billion in the Australian economy. Most of that is composed of a package that they call JobKeeper. And the JobKeeper package is a stimulus to businesses, actually, to wage subsidy. So it's money that goes to businesses to keep people employed. Now, there's a whole bunch of things wrong with the JobKeeper package, and it's quite poorly designed in some respects, and a whole bunch of people are missing out. But... There's no doubt that in the aggregate, in the big picture, it is helping the economy to some degree. The government's also done some things on the welfare net, the safety net. Uh, they've increased the amount of money that people can get who are on welfare benefits. Uh, and that's been very helpful to people, um, particularly who are on unemployment benefits. Um, and then also the Reserve Bank, Australia's central bank, has pumped tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars 
of cheap money into the economy in the form of mm. loans and guarantees to banks. So it's been a, a two-pronged or even a three-pronged approach, and it's one that's linked up with international central banks around the rich industrialised world, all in an attempt to keep the economy from completely seizing up and from all economic activity basically stopping. You've mentioned that um, some people have missed out. Is this just kind of like random, whoops, we forgot about you? Or is there like a method to, is there a pattern here in who's been missing out? It's a little of column A and a little of column B. So um, there's some degree to which the, the government stimulus package has been put together really quickly and, you know, on the fly. And so some of the people missing out have just been omitted. I think they've just been neglected through, uh, you know, bad design. Uh, But there's also been a fair bit of targeting of the stimulus to certain sectors of the economy. And some people have definitely been excluded on purpose. Uh, And probably the most important group in Australia are migrant workers. So these are people who are in Australia on visas who are not Australian citizens, and um, they've basically been excluded from nearly all forms of government support during the pandemic. And that's a very conscious, deliberate decision by the Morrison government, and one that I I think is terrible because it really means that these people have very little uh, safety net at all, very little ability to access help from the government, and, of course, a lot of them are out of work and they've got no means to support themselves. Now, another group that's been left out is uh, universities, which are basically they've um, been left to sort of deal with like half their revenue. I'm not sure. I'm just throwing that number out. But a lot of the money is from international students who who just aren't able to um, um, enter the country. And uh, they've just been told to kind of deal with it. And another group is the the arts, entertainment, performers, uh, community. Um, Our two actors, Ellen and Zoe, a particular Zoe who works a lot in uh, in the the film industry, um, and all her colleagues and acquaintances have just been left out. You've worked with the um, the um, entertainment industry. Uh, sorry, uh, you've covered a lot of the arts uh, community. So I'm not expressing this very well. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, it's what, fine, what, mate. What, yeah, yeah. What's happening in that community? Uh, well, a lot of pain is the short answer. So. Uh, Apart from aviation, um, the cultural industries have been the very worst affected industries. Um, We think that unemployment has increased to something like 25% in those industries, according to preliminary data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Um, And if you think about all the things that have had to shut down because of the pandemic, you know, uh, music venues, um, uh, any kind of festival, um, any kind of cinema, uh, it's really a, a massive impact on, on those sectors. Um, and the government, you're right, has basically hung them out to dry. Um, there's been no bailout package for the arts and cultural sector at all. And the government simply said that um, those industries can access the existing stimulus packages even when they're able to. Um, but this, again, brings into light the problems with the design of those stimulus packages because... Um, It specifically excludes certain classes of workers and one of the classes of workers that it excludes anyone who's a a casual who's been working for their employer for less than 12 months. Now, if you know anything about the arts and culture, that's most of the workers because they're often working in an insecure or a precarious kind of employment situation. Well, they simply move from job to job. If you work on a festival, you might have work for four weeks, eight weeks, and then you move on to the next job. 
Um, so there's a whole bunch of people who simply aren't able to access the government's stimulus policies uh, and they've really been hung out to dry. So there's a, a tremendous crisis in those industries uh, and it's going to get worse, not better. Well, we saw just this week uh, one of the major cultural institutions in Sydney go into receivership called Carriage Works. This is a large government-funded arts organisation of a big um, studio and venue in the middle of Sydney um, that's gone under, um, even with its government funding. So we think this will just be the first of many of these cultural institutions that will go into administration in coming months. And so a lot of really important um you know, sort of breeding grounds for a lot of the talent that we have in theatre and film in, a, you know, in Australia has been um, kneecapped in, in, the, in the process of this. And it'll be really, um, yeah, um, it's going to leave a mark. It's not going to just go, go back to normal. Oh, absolutely, Jordano. Just... It's, it's absolutely going to leave a mark and it's not going to get better anytime soon. And I didn't get to mention the universities, but just quickly, the government has specifically excluded the universities from its job keeper package so it's actually changed the rules uh, three different times to make sure that universities can't access job keeper so again that's a we, pretty yeah. specific set of actions from the government there to make sure universities don't get a bailout yeah that's what that's what you get for all that cultural marxism then. that's right yes <laughs> <laughs> so i want to make sure i put that in inverted commas um very quickly, because people like ever since the, the we made the last video, people have been going. You got to talk about mon modern monetary theory. theory. MMT, sure. can you do that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what the f again? I'm like, what is you know? I've read a little bit about it. Yeah. It's 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 massive. But can you give us a little bit of a? I know I know you've you've got to know a little bit about it. What's the deal with us? And should it yeah, should it yeah. be happening? I do know a little bit about MMT. Look, I encourage you to get somebody like Stephanie Kelton on your show, someone who's a real expert in I've heard MMT. that five times already, yes. Yeah, yeah so she, she's <laughs> Great. The, she is the guru. Um, okay. But look, MMT is really a type of fiscal policy, really. It's a type of policy that the government, any government that controls its own currency can adopt, and it basically means for the government to print money in order to spend in the domestic budget, right? So instead of borrowing money um, or getting money from taxes, MMT says that uh, the government can actually go to the central bank and ask the central bank to just deposit a bunch of money into the government's account um, with no recourse to the international money markets or to taxation. Now, uh, that's an unconventional type of fiscal policy, uh, but it doesn't mean that it can't work. Uh, it's just really going to be constrained by other economic factors in, you know, that, that face the government. And the most important one would be inflation. So most economists would agree that if you print money, eventually if you print enough money, that will lower the value of that currency when it comes to purchasing goods and services. And so the threat that most uh, conventional economists would say is posed by MMT is that it's a cause of inflation. Now, we live in a very low inflation world. Um, and in fact, many people are very worried about deflation and actual, um, uh, not just the low inflation, but inflation going negative is what deflation is. Um, so I would argue that the, there's probably scope to investigate things like MMT in the current environment. Not only would it give federal governments, central governments, uh, more fiscal firepower, more money to be able to throw at unemployment benefits, at stimulating the economy, at investing in things we need like a Green New Deal,
but it might also actually generate some much needed rise in prices, which would actually be good for the economy in other respects as well. So um, I'm not I'm not against MMT at all. I think it's something that we should investigate. I would just add, if I could as well, that um, I think this, there's this huge amount of misery, obviously, that Ben's been talking about. But there is a real opportunity, I think, at this particular moment to think about what we wish to take into the next stage of society or, you know, to use the metaphor that you used, you've done it. Look, we're going to turn the machine on again. Do we want to do that or what do we want to change about how it works? And uh, there is a huge amount of accepted wisdom in um, modern economics, uh, particularly around government spending, that appears to now be quite you know, displaced and, and worthy of critique and, and having a discussion about, you know, the government has made childcare free, for example. Uh, it's raised the payments for unemployed people um, by considerable amount, which it refused to do uh, before now. Uh, and it, it does suggest that it is possible, that these things are possible, that we can allocate resources in different ways and that, that there is uh, a different way of doing things that doesn't just rely on um, scrimping and saving people who need it most and so rather than welfare being something that's about discipline or punishing poor people um, you know trying to discipline in, them into participating in the economy through working and, and penalizing them if they don't that in fact we could have a form of welfare that was about elevating people's standard of living uh, respecting their rights of treating them with dignity um, of trying to make sure that we focus production on what's needed so for the purposes of greening the economy rather than just what the market uh, incentivizes and I think that's really the moment that we've got to take advantage of. We, we need to start talking about what kinds of things we want to, to take into the next stage of our society and what kinds of things in the machine we don't think are any longer acceptable uh, and ought to be forgotten. That, that's great. And this kind of reminds me, you know, I really want to put this to you both because you've taken us into that territory, Lizzie, of the, like, you know, the bigger picture. This is a historic moment that we're traveling through. Um, when do we have that discussion? Because you've just said we've got to decide what we take through into the It feels like those decisions are being made. Have they already been made? How long does this period last? Because, um, you know, what do you feel like we should really be thinking about in this historic moment? Is there something that you've been reflecting on that's really been sitting with you, like, powerfully? Like, is there something you've realized during this time? Well, I suppose I would say, like, even from the... That when we're talking about the app before, it comes to mind, right? The app will will be disabled, the data will be deleted according to the government when this crisis is over. But of course, they define when that is, and you can see a situation where that crisis might extend for a lot longer than everybody thinks um, instinctively at this point. And yet, I have this feeling that in respect of things like um, increased payments for unemployed people or uh, free childcare, for example, the crisis might end a lot quicker so the government can stop having to pay for those things. And so in some respects, I think it's about um, thinking about uh, what I talked about before, the politics of solidarity and care, of understanding that ordinary people working together uh, and uh, collaborating and showing responsibility towards each other is what will get us through this crisis and then finding ways to identify the policies that we want to keep that allow that to happen. And really it's about my view about organising because the, the opportunity politically is there so it depends how we plan to respond to it. And I, I, I do think this crisis presents a bit of a challenge for people who have traditionally organised in person or um around particular organisations and spaces to be able to do it in a digital setting, um, especially in situations where parliaments might not even be sitting, so policymakers aren't even making policy decisions. 
so it's really up to us to kind of come up with innovative new ways of doing it, of, of making use of institutions that exist and putting pressure on them to take account uh, for the decisions that have been made now and dispense with the ones that are not designed to protect rights and uh, hold on to those that are about human dignity and, and flourishing uh, and having that be the primary um, the primary framework around which we discuss this crisis rather than just accepting the talking points of those in power. I really like this uh, uh, British political scientist called William Davies, Will Davies, and he's written a number of really good books over the last few years. He's got a blog post up on um, one of his websites at the moment called The Holiday of Exchange Value. He talks about how COVID-19 has really changed the way in which we've perceived the economy, right? All of a sudden, a whole bunch of people are stuck at home. They don't have much to spend their money on. Um, and they're actually forced because of the pandemic to spend time with their loved ones uh, and to maybe rediscover some of their crafts or some of the pastimes that they loved. At the same time, you've got a whole class of people who are deemed essential workers, right? people who have to still collect your garbage, uh, work in your hospitals, care for the sick, care for the elderly. Uh, they don't have that luxury of staying at home. So, so the pandemic is... At the one, on the one hand, it's revealed a whole class structure of our society that many of us have preferred not to examine too closely. But on the other hand, it's also given us a little bit of a glimpse of a different way of thinking about the world, a different sense of what the economy is for. It's not just that our economy is for working so we can afford enough to buy the things that we need to live or uh, to keep shelter over our heads. Um, we can also see that um, in, a, in a serious enough crisis, in a grave crisis, the government will step in and it will act as the purchaser of last resort. It will actually give money to ordinary people in a stimulus package in what could almost be a sort of forerunner of a universal basic income. And that it will also protect uh, a certain type of people um, because we need those people uh, to work in our economy to keep us alive. So I think the the pandemic has given us a whole really interesting set of new ways of thinking about our society and our economy. And it shows us that the sort of 40-year neoliberal orthodoxy that we've had, particularly in English-speaking societies now for four decades, isn't necessarily the way that we need to construct our society and our economy. We can actually think of a different way of doing things. And I think that's really interesting. It, it, it is really interesting. I mean, for, for a lot of people, it's like this is what they've been saying all along. Um, so I guess, you know, what you're saying is now we've, we can actually see it rather than it being like a theoretical concept that people have been saying, hey, we could do things differently. Now we've been forced to do things differently. And it's like, hey, this is what we were talking about. Uh, I think that the flattening of the curve is a really interesting uh, concept, which, for, you know, people, have been, environmentalists have been talking about it for decades uh, and it's basically the prime motivating incentive to take action on climate change now rather than later because if we flatten the curve on, on uh, carbon emissions the damage will be uh, manageable. Um, so now it's not a theoretical concept anymore like we're actually seeing the concept of flatten the curve hey this is this is what we've been talking about now everyone understands the concept of exponential growth and how uh, you know it doesn't just happen slowly it can happen it doubles and then it's like 
then you're f***ed, basically. There's no, it's too late, basically, at that point. Um, so now it's like, I don't know, that's a val very valuable thing to come out of this. Um, and as you said, you know, also in terms of the economic, uh, the issues of, uh, you know, raising new start, ch uh, childcare, all of these sort of things, <laughs> we can see how they, they, they've been beneficial now. I want to um, wrap up because uh, we're going to try and, uh, and keep this uh, under an hour. Um, I just want to end off, um, as I said at the start, you know, I really love following you both. You've both got your finger on the pulse uh, on the Ozpol uh, scene. And um, I thought of, you know, instead of, uh, you know, normal news shows have headlines at the start where we kind of flag what the most important things. I wanted to end off with that to kind of uh, ask you both if you could uh, close off just by letting us know. What are uh, one or two questions that, that you feel we haven't covered here, which people should really keep an eye on going forward uh, over the next uh, period? Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of things. I guess I'll put on my my kind of digital rights hat for a bit because uh, I do think that so many digital rights issues are actually, you know, human rights issues generally. They're not um, confined to technological concerns. So... More generally, I think we should be worried about um, limiting the rollout of surveillance technologies and the experimentation that this moment provides um, for both companies and governments to do that. And so prior to this uh, particular um, crisis unfolding, we were working with others on a campaign to stop facial recognition technology being rolled out uh, in lots of different community spaces, but also um, a centralised hub in the Australian government, for example, that they were planning for keeping uh, facial recognition um, inputs, like managing a database that would essentially allow and facilitate faster facial recognition for real-time surveillance. And that's deeply alarming. And I think we need to keep an eye on these technologies that may come about as well. I sort of expected that they might at least in relation to managing covid uh, and particularly at this moment where there's this enormous temptation for governments to start experimenting with these, using this justification in the same way that they might hold, for example, in relation to 9-11. To um, so that's a topic that I wouldn't want to ignore. Uh, the other one, of course, is this increasing relationship of um, intelligence sharing between the Five Eyes nations that I described before. And uh, certainly the United States is working with Australia to facilitate uh, greater collaboration and information sharing across boundaries for law enforcement and intelligence purposes. And they'll eventually start cajoling technology companies to do the same. So people may recall it feels like a century ago, but the Attorney General of the United States was putting pressure on uh, Facebook to not encrypt uh, Facebook Messenger as standard because they wanted to access that information for their own purposes and be able to break in, you know, break into Facebook systems to do that as needed. This is, I think, their long-term agenda uh, and uh, they intend to do that with a variety of information sharing agreements across the, their borders in this intelligence agency, in, in this intelligence alliance. I think we need to keep an eye on this because those people never sleep. Like it's their job to build up their capacity and powers and to continue finding ways to make the one of, I think, the greatest inventions of humanity over the last 50, 60 years is the internet, is network computing, and they want to turn it into a machine for them to use and prioritise their interests above people who use it themselves. Right. So good to remember that although you might have been, uh, we might have all been sort of not going to work or not going to the, the shops, um, the powers that be uh, have not been resting during this time and sort of pushing ahead with that um, with that agenda. Um, yeah, if anything, yeah. Um, ben, what are some of the stories we should be keeping an eye on? Yeah, um, I think 
for me, the two things that I'm really interested in at the moment are the debate around relaxation. So when should we relax off the social distancing regulations? When should we start to reopen sections of our economy? And you're starting to see some really pretty fierce debate going on, particularly on the right side of politics, the, the right wing, where people really want to get the economy open right away. And where you're starting to see uh, particularly right wing thinkers, commentators say, look, maybe it's okay if we let a few people die because it's, you know, what the most important thing is we've got to get people back to work, right? Yeah. Like, and, and it, you know, maybe it's okay if your grandma dies. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. It feels like they started saying that pretty much straight away. It's like, okay, lockdown, okay, cool. And then after two days, it's like, I think we should reopen the economy. Like, it didn't, it, it didn't really wait that long, did they? I don't know. It seems no, like it it's because, quick. yeah, because coronavirus is a massive challenge to the neoliberal orthodoxy, which says that money is the most important thing. And if you start insisting on radical ideas like maybe human life is more important than the economy, then who knows what people could start to think. You know, whole sorts of radical ideas could start to make their way into the public sphere. Um, so that's a really hot debate, and I'm really interested in that one. Um, the second one that I think is, is a sort of extension of that, but which is not going to play out for the next year or so, but which could be really, really important, is what I'm seeing as the coming of the next wave of austerity. Now, austerity is the idea that the government should cut spending in an economic downturn. Um, and it's a government policy that's proven to be economically wrong, basically. Um, it's been disproven in terms of its effect on economic on the economic growth of, a, of a, an economy, all right? So if you cut government spending in a downturn, it'll make the downturn worse. But again, we're likely to see more and more calls for the government to cut back on its stimulus spending in months to come because, once again, spending money in a stimulus in a downturn it threatens the neoliberal orthodoxy, which says that the most important thing is a balanced budget for the economy and which also says that it's not the role of the government to step in to fix up market failures. The market is always right. So by definition, the government cannot fix up the market because the market is perfect. Um, and, and we'll see a lot of that, I think, in, in months to come, this idea that we can't afford the stimulus, that we can't afford to pay people on benefits, um, that we're imposing a crippling debt burden on future generations. You know, the same people who have no concerns at all about climate change seem to be extremely concerned about uh, the debt facing their grandchildren. Uh, and I think that'll be a fierce debate in particularly about 12 months time from now. So uh, why do you think that's in 12 months? Because you feel that's it's going to take a while. Well, it might for, be for sooner. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was just wondering. I was like, oh, okay. So, hmm. so at the moment, everyone has agreed to somewhat of a truce on some of the old politics you know, and some of the, the old kind of political and economic debates. But as we move out of the immediate phase of the pandemic and where people are not dying in, you know, streets and, and nursing homes and hospitals, um, as we start to move into the recovery phase, then uh, a lot of the old political debates will reestablish themselves. And particularly people on the right, uh, and particularly uh, the commentators and the people who like to advocate on behalf of capital will start to move into the debate and they'll try to argue that we can't have all of this stimulus payments being given to ordinary people because, of course, that threatens the interests of capital. They would like to see that the government uh, basically get out of doing stimulus as much as possible and get back to the business of reducing taxes and 
uh, deregulating labour markets and freeing up the economy for big corporations. Thanks so much. <laughs> thanks so much, Lizzie. Uh, Lizzie O'Shea, Ben Altham, thanks for joining us on the Juice Media podcast. I, I hope you'll, we'll have you back again um, to talk about um, uh, some of the issues that are unfolding in this historic time that we're going through. Um, thanks for breaking it down um, on the COVID Safe app, on the economy, and uh, lots of shitfuckery in between. Um, thank you. Thanks, Lizzie. Thanks, Giordano. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Giordano. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 11 of the Juice Media Podcast. As I mentioned at the start, this is part one of the episode accompanying our honest government ad about the machine. And in the next podcast, I'll be joined for part two by a very special international guest to talk about the global picture and what this historic moment means for that other curve we need to flatten, the climate emergency. As always, thank you to all our patrons who make it possible for us to produce this podcast. If you'd like to support our work and our videos, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash The Juice Media. This is Giordano, and you've been listening to The Juice Media Podcast. Take care and wash your hands.